This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. Coney, does that name mean anything to you? The Ugandan warlord who became the most talked about person on the planet for a bit after a social media campaign to reveal his alleged crimes against humanity about a decade ago. What happened to him? Where is he? And did all that global attention actually work? Well, in a bit, we're going to bring you up to speed on where investigators are up to with Joseph Coney. If you don't know who I'm talking about, you will soon. Also, how have you changed your eating habits to deal with the cost of living? Like, what specifically are you doing to cut back? Because we're going to be talking food waste later, and we'll have some tips on what you can do to save money. First, though. Hack. Whether I decide to do this again and spend another 11 and a half grand, and whether I can afford that right now is a little bit heartbreaking. On Triple Jack. Yeah, we're speaking a lot about fertility these days, whether it's research warning of fertility dropping, advice on how to boost your fertility, or planning for the future. And we know egg freezing is something a lot of young women are doing or even just thinking about. You might have noticed heaps of marketing around it too, influencers talking about egg freezing. Have you had your eggs frozen in your 20s? Why did you decide to do it? Did you feel better having had it done? Message in 0439757555 because some people are doing it really early. There are experts out there who say younger women especially should be thinking twice before rushing into these decisions. So when is the right age to freeze your eggs? Rhiannon Shine is a reporter with the ABC's 7.30 and she's been looking into this. Hey, Rhiannon, thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me. Do we know if there has been a spike in women choosing to freeze their eggs in recent years? There definitely has. I mean, egg freezing technology was developed way back in the 1980s and that was a way of helping women with serious health issues like cancer preserve their fertility. But now, like you were saying, it's become quite mainstream as an elective procedure. It's marketed as a way for young women to focus on your career. Maybe you want to go travelling essentially fight the biological clock. So the number of Australian women um, who froze their eggs tripled in the um, five years to 2020. Wow. It's it's more and more people in the under 35 age group. I think in Victoria, the under 35 age group had a 62% increase in egg freezing in the 2021 financial year compared on the previous year. So that's huge. Um, so more and more women earlier in life are taking up this option. And I've been speaking with some women, even in their 20s, who are doing it. Yeah, I was interested in this because one of the people you spoke with was a 24-year-old medical student, Anna. What did Anna have to say? Yeah, she's done a lot of her own research on this before coming to the decision. But what I found really interesting is that when she went to a fertility specialist, that doctor actually advised her not to do it. Here's what Anna says about that. The the doctor I saw was baffled, kind of, or not baffled, but a bit, why would you, why would you do this at 24, 25 shoes, no stress or like family history of infertility, no reason to be worried about premature uh, menopause or anything. So, I mean, she was so honest about the fact that it's not something that I would need to do, that I even had to clarify with her whether she would be willing to do it if I wanted it. And she said she would. It's, it's my choice. Um, I don't think I'm going to regret spending this money because I, tr- I, ho- I hope and trust that future me will think, even if, even if I don't use 
those eggs or don't do anything with them, future me will think you were just doing something to secure what was important to you. And if I don't need them, I feel like I've already won. Like, if I don't need them, that means I've had a child. Right. So Anna's saying that uh, there was a bit of confusion there from the doctor. Uh, when are doctors saying the right age is to be thinking about this? Are they generally saying if you're in your early 20s, it's too soon? Yes. All the doctors I spoke to for this story said that they wouldn't, generally speaking, recommend egg freezing to someone in their early 20s um, for a non-medical reason, for an elective reason like in Anna's case. Um, And for Anna, it's because she sees it as being something that is really important to her, having a family in the future. And she says, this is like my friends saving up for a house or holidays. This is what's most important to me. But the doctors I spoke to say that for a number of reasons, they don't recommend egg freezing to someone in their early 20s. For example, um, you have to pay annual storage fees. That's $500. So the earlier you freeze your eggs, the less likely you are to ever need to use them. So you might be paying on top of the thousands of dollars for the actual procedure, then you've got $500 a year for however many years that you're paying for them to be in storage and you may never come back for them. On top of that, women under 30 are at higher risk of medical complications from the uh, fertility drugs you take in the lead up to the procedure. That's interesting. And so some of the women were speaking to you about that as well, saying they weren't fully prepared for some of the reactions they'd have, right? Yeah, and it'll be different for everyone, of course, but it's called ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. And it's a rare side effect of the hormone drugs you take in the lead up to the egg retrieval process. So it is rare, but it is a possible side effect from doing what is essentially an elective procedure in these cases. Right. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with the ABC's Rhiannon Shine about egg freezing and the spike in young women getting this done. Rhiannon, there's a lot more marketing around egg freezing as well. And a lot of listeners are telling us that they're seeing what seem to be targeted ads, but also influencers being recruited to promote this as well. Yeah, I get the, the ads in my Instagram as well. And some of my friends have said to me, it's like clockwork. I turned 30 and you get these Instagram ads about your biological clock. And then there are, you know, the celebrities talking about it and social media influencers as well. So it's a lot more in your face than what it was previously. And a lot of the IVF clinics that I've spoken to attribute the uptick in interest to the awareness from social media. And there was a case recently um, in Melbourne with an influencer who partnered with an IVF clinic that drew some headlines because people were questioning the ethics of that. Should a social media influencer be promoting this? In response to that, the IVF clinic in question and the social media influencer said, well, this is about raising awareness about fertility issues and removing the stigma. So one doctor I spoke to in particular was worried about this increase in marketing and celebrities talking about all of this, social media influencers talking about it. Um, But they said the line is really when it's made to look really simple, really straightforward or really glamorous. They said information provision is a good thing, but it can't be made to look straightforward because it's just not. And so what are some of the other concerns doctors have with this? One doctor I spoke to in particular was concerned about 
women jumping into this without fully considering the financial, the physical and the emotional toll. Here's Dr Tamara Hunter. Well, I don't necessarily think that they need to jump into this. It is a medical procedure. It is not without risk. Equally, there's no absolute guarantee that they're going to get a live birth out of this. Given that we know that less than one in 10 women actually come back to use these eggs, it's a big step financially, physically, mentally and socially to take if you're never actually going to act on it. I think for me, the takeaway message from researching this story as a 29-year-old woman myself is that I learned a lot about fertility that I probably should have known already. And I think young women often go from high school and their early 20s, having only been told really how not to get pregnant. And then suddenly you're being you know, hit with ads about the biological clock in your social media. So I think one of the key messages that the doctors I spoke to wanted to get across too is that while you definitely don't need to jump into egg freezing without giving careful consideration to all the pros and the cons, it is a good idea, especially if you have any concerns, to go get a blood test, check your family history and find out about your personal fertility status. Good advice. And look, this is a big issue, one that you're going to keep looking into and one that we'll keep covering as well. ABC 7.30 reporter Rhiannon Shine, thanks so much for coming on Hack. Thank you. And a lot of messages on this one. Someone says, I feel like egg freezing is just a phenomenon, a result of targeted fear-based marketing, particularly for women in their 30s. Such a profitable scam. That's Amy. She's a friend of an egg freezer. They've got some more messages from people who this has been a game changer. This has been really important for them. Someone, I had intense chemotherapy when I was 25 and chose to freeze one of my ovaries to preserve the chances of having children. I now feel like there's less pressure for me to need to make decisions about starting a family. It's given me freedom. And someone else, g'day Dave, I'm 24 years old. I was diagnosed with polycystic ovary syndrome at 18. I had lots of issues with it recently and I'm looking into egg freezing at the moment because my gynecologist wants to remove both my ovaries and I want to be able to have my own children later in life. Unfortunately, I don't have many other options. And someone else at 30, I had a gynecologist try to guilt me into freezing my eggs despite having just been told uh, that my fertility was good. So lots of different stories on this one. And of course, as Rhiannon said, it's really personal. It depends on your circumstances and your situation. Hack. Brandon, do you know what Coney 2012 is? Do you run against Obama? And no. Okay. All right. On Triple J. Yeah, Joseph Coney, do you remember that name? About a decade ago, there was this massive global push among young people to track down this Ugandan warlord over alleged crimes against humanity. But all these years later, he's still on the run. Have you ever wondered who investigates this stuff? War crimes? Who's responsible? Because you might have heard of the International Criminal Court. They've issued arrest warrants for Vladimir Putin and also taken some recent action against Joseph Kony. In a minute, we're going to get into what the International Criminal Court's been doing. Got some messages through already. Someone says, hey, Dave, I still have a Mint Coney 2012 T-shirt ready to go. Let's get into it. That's from Simon in the Hunter Valley. Another person says, I made Coney Pony posters in high school. Well, if you don't know who I'm talking about or you need a bit of a refresher, here's Angel Parsons to bring you up to speed with Coney. Okay, so it's 2012. One Direction is in its prime. You are rocking a side part or headband and this song is going viral. But something that also went viral was a documentary. 
to level with you, this movie expires on December 31st, 2012. And its only purpose is to stop the rebel group, the LRA, and their leader, Joseph Coney. This 30-minute video was super controversial, but it made the name Joseph Coney famous across the world. And if you don't remember this, let me just say it blew up. If you've been on Twitter or Facebook recently, you've probably seen a new campaign called Coney 2012. Thanks in no small part to a savvy social media campaign aimed at young people. We are living in a new world, Facebook world, in which 750 million people share ideas. Right now, there are more people on Facebook than there were on the planet 200 years ago. For 26 years, Coney has been kidnapping children into his rebel group, the LRA, turning the girls into sex slaves and the boys into child soldiers. He makes them mutilate people's faces and he forces them to kill their own parents. And this is not just a few children. It's been over 30,000 of them. In 1987, Joseph Coney founded a movement that eventually became the Lord's Resistance Army. He was 26. There were significant ethnic and cultural tensions in Uganda, including another rebel group, the National Resistance Army, overthrowing the president and seemingly targeting the Acholi people in the north. Kony had fought for Acholi rights, but after founding the LRA, turned on his supporters and carried out indiscriminate killings. Now his forces are believed by the United Nations to be responsible for the deaths of more than 100,000 people. And a lot of people in the West didn't know a thing about him until this doco produced by a charity called Invisible Children. But if the government doesn't believe the people care about arresting Coney, the mission will be canceled. In order for the people to care, they have to know. The video attracted criticism for oversimplifying and misrepresenting the issue, but it was the reason millions of young people in the West suddenly knew Coney's name and his alleged crimes. But that was all over 10 years ago. So where are we today? Well, despite international efforts to arrest him, Coney hasn't been captured and he's still in hiding. The International Criminal Court have had a warrant out for his arrest since 05. And last year, they did something new. ICC prosecutors are requesting to confirm charges against him in his absence, to hold a hearing even though he remains at large. And this request is still being considered by the ICC chamber. There can't be a trial without him, but they can hold hearings where evidence can be presented and witnesses and survivors can give their accounts. And the court says that would make a future trial more efficient should Coney be captured. The ICC have said it's a meaningful milestone for victims and hopes this would spur on efforts to arrest Coney who's the court's longest-standing suspect at large. Hack on Triple J. Angel Parsons with that update. Look, let's get into this a bit more now, find out about the International Criminal Court, how it works, what they're doing in this situation. With us now is an expert, Tony Raymond Kirabira from the University of Portsmouth in the UK. Hey, Tony, thanks for joining us on Hack. 
It's my pleasure and I'm excited to be here uh, with you. Tony, you've worked for the International Criminal Court in the past. Can you explain to our listeners what this court's role is? Like, how does it work? Does it have much power? Um, For starters, um, the court is basically only by the will of some states. They decided that there was need for an international court to deal with atrocities, to deal with impunity, to deal with accountability for war crimes and crimes against humanity. Prior to 1998, just in the early 1990s, there was um, the conflict in Serbia, and there was also a genocide there. There was also genocide in Rwanda, in Africa, and those massive atrocities led to the creation of specialized tribunals just within the United Nations. But nonetheless, the states thought that there was a need to have a permanent court because those tribunals were not permanent. So in 1998, there was a statute that was ratified by multiple states across the world that formed the International Criminal Court. And then in 2002, the court was operationalized. So since then, since 2002, the court has been um, investigating and uh, prosecuting atrocities in different countries. So as we've been hearing, we have International Criminal Court prosecutors wanting to charge Joseph Coney despite him still being on the run. He's still missing. How important is this development in your opinion? Uganda was the first country ever to refer a case to the International Criminal Court. At the time, Joseph Coney and his Lord's Resistance Army were actively involved in war crimes in northern Uganda. So around 2002, Joseph Kony and five of his top commanders were indicted by the court. And Joseph Kony has been, you know, has been on the run since then. Although he's no longer in Uganda, he's believed to be in Central African Republic. So the court is keen on sending out a message that there's no room for escaping liability. And that is why Joseph Kony is still on the court's radar. Do you think it will send a strong message? Do you think it will achieve much? Well, from a legal perspective, it definitely sends a message to not only Joseph Cohen. You might have known there's uh, multiple conflicts within that part of Africa, rebels. It might send a message to them that, hey, you might be out there committing atrocities, but the long arm of the law and international law will definitely haunt you. But then realistically, I don't think that Joseph Kony is really um, worried about the court at the moment, having escaped massive bombardment from the American troops, from the Ugandan troops. Tony, do you think Joseph Kony will ever be found and brought to justice? Well, the possibility of... Finding Joseph Kony, wherever he is believed to be, and being brought to justice, if if I could rate it, a 20% possibility out of 100, of course. Because Central Africa Republic, where he's believed to be hiding, and a part of Democratic Republic of Congo are areas that are not only remote, but are perpetually engrossed in conflict, which becomes difficult to access. And as you know, the International Criminal Court does not have a police, does not have an army, 
it only depends on the support of member states like Uganda. And if those states are not uh, willing to insert more pressure or more resources to hand down Joseph Kony or any other fugitives, then it becomes um, literally impossible. Well, look, there'll be so many people who are really interested in keeping up to date with this. And we thank you very much for being able to fill us in, provide us with a bit of an update into a person who was the main figure of our attention for, for a while, so many years ago, Joseph Kony. Legal expert Tony Raymond Kirabira from the University of Portsmouth, thank you very much for coming on Hack. It's my pleasure, Dave. Hack on Triple J. And messages coming through. Someone says, yeah, I was a passionate and social justice 14-year-old in 2012. I got the whole Coney charity kit and caboodle. After the scandal, I gave up on it, but I wear the T-shirt regularly as a pyjama shirt, so I'm still wondering where Coney is. Hack. About 70% of our food waste is still edible, which is not only terrible for the environment, but also our wallets. On Triple J. Yeah, there's never been a better time to talk about food wastage because you'll hear those stories about supermarkets throwing out heaps of perfectly good food, going to landfill instead of people's tables. There are charities, though, that are leading this fight to save food and get it to those people who need it most. In a bit, we're going to be speaking with a food wastage expert who has some tips for you on how you might save some money, make things go further. But first, Miles Holbrook-Walk's been spending a bit of time with some food rescuers in Darwin. It's early morning in Darwin and I'm standing in a warehouse where I'm about to go on a peculiar journey. I'm about to get into a truck that's going to go all over Darwin, going to shops and stores, trying to find any food that's going to be thrown away. And this is being done by the food bank. They're doing it because more and more people are needing help. And this is just some of the work they do to make sure literally no gram goes wasted. Fruit and veg, produce, variety. So anything in the stores are sort of, you know, not A-class quality. They take it off the shelves and they put it aside for us to come and collect. That's Trevor. He's driving along with Joyce. The two have been doing these rescues for a while. So they know which shop is likely to have the things they need. Next stop is a Coles in town that always has fruit. We've got another pear. It's just got a couple little blemishes. Apples and blackberries. So the quality's not too bad. You're still quite edible. You just cut off, I guess, the bits that you, you don't want to eat. Trevor's bang on when he says this stuff is quite edible. You might have the odd bruised orange here and there, but to be honest, it'd be all good for your kitchen. After driving around for about two and a half hours, all the food is brought back to this huge warehouse where there's a series of volunteers, paid employees, even people who are in the correctional system helping out to make sure all the food gets packed and sorted properly. What's become immediately clear is that so many people are relying on food bank style services. Josie volunteers at Oz Harvest supermarket where they give away literally tons of food for free every week. I've noticed actually, yeah, some, some young people which I assume are probably students. Richard Watson works at Oz Harvest, managing their New South Wales operations. He reckons demand for these services has never been higher. Absolutely students, uh, particularly international students. So this is not people that are necessarily out of work. This is people that are potentially in employment, but are really doing it tough at the moment. We're seeing what we call the new hungry. 
That idea Rich mentions of the new hungry, there's research from Oz Harvest that backs it up. It's found 31% of people going to charities for help, they've never done it before. And the charities that are helping people get enough food to eat have seen more than double the amount of people asking for help in the last six months. Government at all levels don't seem to be helping us out at the moment when the need is the highest it's ever been and continues to increase. It's disappointing. There's also some people completely flipping the food rescue model on its head, taking to the streets and action into their own hands. The variety is endless. I couldn't believe it. So I, I just went out and had a look and whoa, like straight away I was finding stuff. Meet Brendan Rikihana, a proud dumpster diver in Perth. You know, literally finding food people have put in the bin and eating it. He's had some of his videos blow up on TikTok and YouTube, showing all the food, jewellery and even artwork he's been able to salvage on his channel, Bin Living with Big B. Want a drink? Got it from the dumpster. I got that from the dumpster. Yeah, I got all of that from the dumpster. Oh, I got that out of the rubbish bin. Brendan believes his work is reaching people to take it up themselves, to reduce waste and find treasure among trash. I've been an inspiration to a, a few people that I stay in contact with, and some of them have even become content creators and, and, and gone ahead and documented their own dumpster diving as a result of my videos. But for those relying on charity services, Richard Watson says last week's federal budget was a major missed opportunity to properly fund food charities so they can keep supplying everyone who does rock up. I think society's been left behind. Um, it's actually quite emotional to talk about it because um, I think, and, you know, you come down to places like this today and you sort of think, you know, how could you produce a surplus budget not consider the basic needs of humanity, which is to be fed? Hack on Triple J. Miles Holbrook-Walk reporting there from Darwin. We've got some messages coming through. Someone says, in some places like France, they legislated that the excess food has to go to charity. Maybe we need something like this done here. And other people with their kind of changes that they're making to save money. Someone says, I've started buying caged eggs because I can't afford free-ranged. Another person says, I also shop in the last hour of the day so that I can get the most discounted, almost rotten food. Well, look, with me now is Dr. Mark Boulay, a household food, food wastage expert from Monash University. Hey, Mark, thanks for coming on Hack. How are you going? Yeah, well, thank you. When we talk about food wastage, we know we waste a lot, but do we actually have a figure on how much we are wasting in Australia? Yeah, so in Australia, um, we waste just over 7.5 million tonnes of avoidable food uh waste per year. So this is food that could have been eaten but ends up going in the bin. So it doesn't wow. include your scraps and your bones and those sort of things. So that, that's quite a large figure. And, you know, from your previous package, you know, you talked about um, supermarkets and other things being a part of that. Households uh, actually uh, contribute about a third of that. So about 2.5 million tonnes of, of avoidable food waste are thrown out from households every year. So there is, as you know, you mentioned before, there's a significant opportunity for us to actually save food that we're wasting in our own homes. So what are some of the things that you would recommend, uh, Mark, in terms of cutting back, saving money? How can people really get that wastage down? Sure. So I, I did some work also with Oz Harvest, um, who are also looking at tackling the issue of household food waste. And what we tried to do was actually 
think through what are all the different behaviours that lead to food waste, but also what are the, the different things that people could be doing to reduce food waste. And we actually identified there's a whole bunch of things that you could do even as far back as when you're planning for shopping. There's a bunch of things you can do when you're shopping, when you bring the shopping home and how you store food, how you cook, and then what you do during you, uh, when you eat. So I guess what it means for your listeners is that there's, there's actually a whole bunch of things you can do in the supermarket, in planning to go shopping, and when you bring food home, that also contributes to how much food you save as opposed to waste. But the three most important things that we identified is that once a week you have a meal that combines any food that needs to be used up. So this isn't quite leftovers. This might be you know, the couple of carrots you got left over from the bag of carrots that you bought, you know, the half a block of cheese that you may still have left over. So you make sure you use up what's left in the fridge before you go and shop for more, which is often a common source of waste in the house. The second thing that we found, which actually helps with the first one, is in your fridge or your pantry to have a designated use it up space, um, which is where you place food that you know needs to be used up so that you can remind yourself about it. Because these things often get forgotten, right, at the back of the fridge. Especially if we have a full fridge, we tend to lose sight of the things that need to be used up. And what's number three? And the third one is uh, before you cook a meal, particularly if you're living, say, in a share house or with other people, check who's actually going to be coming home to eat so that you can cook the right amount. Often people cook more than they need. We say we want to use it for leftovers, but it doesn't often get used up. So check before you cook is the third most uh, impactful thing that you can do. Interesting stuff. Food wastage expert, Dr. Mark Boulay. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there, but thank you so much for your time. Thanks for coming on Hack. Pleasure. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.